So Revelation chapter 10. And I know that um, the things we've talked about so far in the study of this book have been deep and challenging and um, maybe confusing at times and at other times cause for um, wonder. You've had uh, preachers who've taught on this before and so you've You've gone, well, that's not what we heard before. And so you've gone home and studied this good. That's good. It's good that you think about these things deeply and consider them. But if through chapter 9, it's been a cakewalk for you, um, I'm sorry to tell you that that's probably coming to an end very quickly because we are coming to a section of the book that is filled with deep, dreadful things that are difficult to understand And so we'll take them as graciously as we can with humility as we seek the face of the Lord, as we try to understand in the power of the Spirit, as we seek to be consistent. One of the things we talked about so many weeks ago is that we want to be consistent in our application of the symbolism John gives us. And we'll take these things with with a measure of, of grace, understanding that God has not given us these words to trouble us because we are his people. He has given them to us to comfort us. In fact, to bless us, John says in chapter one, blessed are those who read the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who put them into practice. And so we want to read them and we want to practice them, immerse ourselves in them. And so tonight we come to Revelation chapter 10. And if we were giving this chapter a title, I believe we would call it, Eat These Words. Eat these words. So let's read together these 11 verses and then we'll begin to walk through them. John says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to the heaven And swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, My stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. In verses 1 through 3, we see another mighty angel. When the sixth angel blew the sixth trumpet at the end of chapter 9, 
The collective voice of all the saints, long voiced in intercession, was finally voiced in instruction. John writes, A voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God directed the sixth angel to release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. With this instruction came the unleashing of a demonic horde. Though the 200 million strong cavalry unit is described as mounted troops, the riders wearing breastplates of red, blue, and yellow, the same colors which came from the mouths of the horses in fire, sulfur, and smoke. Their need to be released because they were bound along with their serpent-like tails points to the fact that there is, this was no ordinary army. This is a mass of demonic powers that are bound until such time as the plans and purposes of God call for their release. The demonic cord kills a third of mankind. This is not one moment of battle in which a third of the earth in our day, some two and a half billion people, are slain at once by a fierce horde of demonic horses and riders. We must remember that the revelation is apocalyptic in nature. It is describing literal events using figurative language. What the sixth trumpet judgment described is a spiritual battle with physical effects. God will allow demons to be released into the world, and these demons will use all sorts of ordinary ills, murder, war, natural disaster, disease, pandemic, to bring about the death of a third of the earth's population. And because this slaughter will come as a set of plagues that will not result in widespread repentance, but in widespread idolatry, we should see these plagues as happening in a condensed fashion at the end of time. As we get closer to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of ordinary human history, what the Bible calls this present age, there will be a ramping up of judgment upon those who dwell on the earth, unbelievers. And one sign of that judgment will be widespread death that happens through ordinary means but for a spiritual purpose, that of conveying God's unwillingness to overlook sin, his desire to turn the hearts of the wicked to himself, and his commitment to his own name and the witness of his saints. Chapter 10 and chapter 11 through verse 14 are an interlude between the blowing of the sixth and seventh trumpets, between the second and third woes, between the slaughter of a third of the earth and the assertion that this present age has come to its end and that the age to come is at hand, an age hastened by the full wrath of God poured out upon the earth. The interlude begins with the vision of a mighty angel. Remember, there was an interlude before between the breaking of the sixth seal and the breaking of the seventh seal. And so here we are once again thrown toward the end of human history in the breaking of the or the blowing of the sixth trumpet. But now God has brought us back and he's wanting to give his people a measure of comfort. He's wanting to remind us of his control over us. And so he gives John this vision of a mighty angel. John first saw a mighty angel in chapter 5 and verse 2. There the angel asked who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And of course the response was no one. No one except the lamb standing as though he had been slain. 
Here, the mighty angel transcends from heaven to where John is, wrapped in a cloud, which appears as both a means of conveyance and of covering. John will see a mighty angel again in chapter 18 and verse 21, where the angel will throw a millstone-like stone into the sea as a symbol of the destruction of Babylon, the great city. This mighty angel in chapter 10, descending to John in a cloud, had a rainbow over his head. The word for rainbow here is the Greek word eris. It means a rainbow or a halo. It's only used in the Revelation here and in chapter 4 in verse 3 where it is described as being around the throne of the one who sits upon the throne, God the Father. There it is much like the description of the throne of God that we find in Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 28. The rainbow is a symbol, Tom Schreiner says, of God's presence and authority. So covered in a cloud and crowned with a rainbow, the mighty angel was countenanced with a shining brilliance, much like that of the Lord Jesus, who John writes in chapter 1 and verse 16 His face was like the sun, shining in full strength. John says that this angel's face was like the sun, and his legs were like pillars of fire. So this angel is strong and stunning. But be clear, he is no savior. This is not the Lord Jesus. Jesus is not the one who's delivering this message to John. This is only an angel. This angel is a messenger from God, having a little scroll open in his hand. This is not the same scroll that we read about in chapter 5 and chapter 6, the one that was sealed with seven seals and contained the story of human destiny. Rather, this is a little scroll. John uses the diminutive form of the word here. It's little. Unlike the scroll in chapter 5 that was sealed, this little scroll is open although its contents are largely unknown to us at this point. The fact that the angel has set his foot, his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, indicates that whatever the scroll contains has to do with the entire world. As Schreiner writes, it is for those who live on the land and for those who sail the seas. John not only saw the angel descend, but he also heard the angel speak. He writes that the angel called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. George Eldon Ladd writes that the verb in this sentence, called, is used of the bellowing and the lowing of cattle, but it can also indicate the roaring of a lion. And so the emphasis here is not upon the animal-like nature of the angel's voice, but upon the, the sound, the, the intensity, the volume of the angel's voice. There was a mighty angel that John saw coming down. And then in verses 3 and 4, he heard a voice. He says, when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. John writes that when the angel called out, the seven thunders sounded. It's important to note the presence of the definite article, the word the. 
Whenever the Greek uses the definite article, it usually means that something specific is being referred to. So it may be that when John talks about the seven thunders, he meant something that his initial audience would have understand, some reference to the literature in antiquity or to the stories and mythologies of the ancient world. Whatever it is that John meant is probably lost to us. We have no reference in the scripture to, quote, the seven thunders. Though it's worthy to note that Tom Schreiner, theologian based out of Southern Seminary, says that as the number seven is symbolic, the seven thunders probably depict a full revelation of God's majesty and wrath. This experience of being in the Spirit on the Lord's Day and being caught up into the presence of God and being shown things that must soon take place has been an active experience for John. Even as he was seeing and hearing, he's also been struggling to comprehend what he was seeing and then translating those sounds and sights and thoughts into words under the leadership of the Spirit. This was because John was instructed in chapter 1 and verse 11 to write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And in chapter 1 in verse 19, to write therefore the things that you've seen, of those that are and those that are to take place after this. So it's only natural here that John was about to write, he says, when he heard from the mighty angel and what he saw in the little scroll open in his hand. But before he could write, he heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. This instruction to stop writing and to seal up what, what was said was not all-encompassing. Indeed, John would receive angelic instruction in chapter 22 and verse 10 not to seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Instead, this instruction was limited to this particular set of information. What could be learned from the little scroll and from the seven thunders? Though God reveals much of the future, he does not reveal everything. Indeed, we are reminded as this information is concealed that the secret things belong to the Lord. George Eldon Ladd writes that the only hint we have as to the message of the seven thunders is to be found in the fact that all other passages in the Revelation where thunders occur form a premonition of coming judgments of the divine wrath of God. He references chapter 8, verse 5, chapter 11 and verse 19, chapter 16 and verse 18. And then he says this fits the present context for the angel announces that the consummation of the divine judgments is about to take place. In verses 5 through 7, you, you see and hear a solemn oath made. So we've witnessed a mighty angel and we've heard a voice and now there comes a solemn oath. John writes that the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. 
Both the size of the messenger and the scope of the message now come into view. As John saw the angel standing on the sea and on the land, and saw him raise his right hand to heaven to offer an oath. The oath is sworn by the ultimate authority, namely God himself. John describes both God's eternal nature and his encompassing work. The eternal nature of God is that he is the one who lives forever and ever. The same descriptor given at chapter 4 and verse 9 regarding him who is seated on the throne. In the background here is the vision of Daniel chapter 12 where there's a vision of the time of the end, Daniel writes. As part of that vision, Daniel saw a man clothed in linen raise his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swear by him who lives forever. Indeed, that Daniel 12 vision is in the background, not only of this angelic oath, but of the time, times, and half a time that are soon to be described in John's vision. God's encompassing work centers on creation, particularly the creation of heaven and what is in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. What the angel promises is that there would be no more delay. This is not to assert that the angel has been the source of some delay or that the plans of God have been interrupted. Rather, it is to assert that what the seal and trumpet judgments were given to accomplish namely the ordinary course of human history that sees increasing divine judgment as the days draw to a close as a sign of what would take place are quickly coming to their end. And the great day of the Lord will soon take place. Ordinary history in the New Testament is referred to as the present age. We see that in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 17, Titus 2 and verse 12, Hebrews 9 and verse 9. Eternity future in the New Testament is talked about as the age to come. Matthew 12 and 32, Mark 10 and verse 30, Luke 18 and verse 30, Hebrews 6 and verse 5. When the angel promises that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, he is asserting that very soon, the present age will end, and the age to come will come. That angel promises that the mystery of God would be fulfilled. In the New Testament, the word mystery is used to describe something that was previously hidden, but is now disclosed or revealed. The mystery of God is the plan of God for the magnification of his own glory through the creation and redemption of men, a plan that has been woven into the story of the world from the very beginning and has been progressively revealed in Scripture. This mystery was revealed in large part in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ the first time. It will be revealed in full when he comes the final time. The angel says that this will happen just as he announced to his servants the prophets. The prophets both in the Old Testament and in the New were the men of God who received revelation of the Lord of both his impending judgment and his certain redemption. Through the Spirit, they received the authoritative messages about the condition of the people in their own day and about how God would accomplish his purpose at the end of days.
In chapter 8, or chapter 10, verses 8 through 11, have the angel having made his oath, we now see the consumption of a bittersweet scroll. John says, Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Once again, we are reminded here of the prophetic nature of the revelation. Remember, many weeks ago when we began this journey, we talked about the fact that the Revelation is three genres in one compiled together. It is epistle, it's a letter, uh, it's prophecy, it is both foretelling and forthtelling, and it is also apocalyptic work. It is, it is a revelation, it is something that is both far-fetched and yet in all reality true. Here we're reminded of the prophetic nature of this work. The voice John had heard from heaven instructed him, go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel. So John told the angel, give me the scroll. And then he was told to eat it with the warning that it would make his stomach bitter, but be sweet in his mouth. In Ezekiel chapter 2 in verse 8, the prophet was told to open his mouth and eat what he was given. He was given a scroll with words of lamentation and mourning and woe written on it. When he ate it, he found that it was sweet as honey in his mouth, Ezekiel 3 and verse 3. Surely this is in the background of John's experience. For him to eat the little scroll and find that it would turn his stomach but be sweet in his mouth was for him to consume the word of the Lord, a word that is comforting to the people of God but horrifying to those who are far from the Lord. What God gives his servants to say is not always pleasant, but it is always right, and it does always accomplish its purpose. So John ate the little scroll and found it was just as he had been told, sweet in his mouth, but making his stomach bitter. Having ingested the word of the Lord, John was then told that he must again prophesy Though he was not allowed to write what he heard from the seven thunders, his prophetic work was not done. The message God has given him must go forward, and it must go forward both to comfort and to convict. It is a word about the whole world, ordinary people and rulers, tribes and tongues. These are words that will be sweet to those who are on the side of God. And they are words that will serve as an indictment on those who dwell on the earth. Ladd writes that John's prophetic message of coming judgment does not concern one people or nation, but many, the, in, the entire civilized world. And in the immediate foreground are the people of the Roman Empire who are willing to be subservient to Rome. But the ultimate view includes an apostate civilization willingly subservient to Antichrist. There's some lessons I want you to take away from this little scroll. The first one is this. God is the author of history because God is the creator. 
of history. God knows precisely what should happen, causes it to be what will happen, and prepares his people for it to happen. Easter is coming. One of the things that John and JB and I are working on is uh, an exploration of the passages of Scripture that talk about the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. You'll hear more about this in days to come. And as we've been walking through this and thinking about these passages of Scripture, one of the things that that I've noted to both of them in, in my reading has been the historical nature of these events. That for a people who lived in a real world, who had real lives, and who struggled with real sins, God sent a real Savior into a real time and a real place. In fact, of the two dates of the crucifixion events that are um, theorized by scholars, one of them being in the year 33 and one of them in the year 30, uh, this year it actually falls on the actual dates. In the year 30, it was April the 2nd, Palm Sunday, and April the 9th, Easter Sunday. That is exactly what it will be this year. And so if that date is correct, then 1,993 years ago, God himself gave his life in the place of sinners. It's good to remember that God, the creator of the story, is in full control of the story. That all the ordinary events of human history are not outside of his control. And that God has purposed from the very beginning to glorify himself in the redemption of mankind. And so because that's his purpose, he causes it to be. And because he's in control and can cause his purposes to come to pass, he also foretells to his people what will be. He doesn't leave us without warning. The reality of this scroll that God is in charge of that contains some of the pieces of the mystery of the Lord being fulfilled, the fact that this is a reality points us to God's control over the world. He's the author of history because he is history's creator. Number two, I think we learn from this passage that God reveals redemption progressively. And though we see in part now, we do not yet see the whole, but God does. So our call is to walk by faith and not by sight. Do you remember what it was like to read the Bible from beginning to end the first time? Do you remember getting down in the mud of Genesis or Exodus or Leviticus and wondering, my heavens, when do we get to the good stuff? Or do you remember coming to those passages that were difficult to understand and wondering, where is the gospel here? Where's the good news? Or do you remember coming to the Psalms And hearing David and this other psalmist talk about the the highs and lows of life and knowing of the presence of God in both life and in death and yet not fully having a developed understanding of life eternal and wondering what are we supposed to do with that? How are we supposed to understand God's presence in the depths of Sheol and his heights in the heavens above? Where does that fit into our theology of heaven and hell and the end of days. 
And then all of a sudden, you come to the Gospels. And many of the things that may have never made sense begin to get clearer. You begin to understand that what God has been doing throughout the long story of creation and the revelation of himself to his people, he's been giving us a piece at a time. Not more than we could handle, just enough to keep us trusting him. And the more that we trust him, the more he's revealed. It's not unlike, it's not unlike the study of mathematics. In kindergarten, we're taught our numbers and by second grade, we can add and subtract. And in third grade, we learn to multiply. And fourth grade, we learn long division. And then they come along with this wonderful invention called algebra. And most of us, we scratch our heads and wonder, what in the world is this for? Until you become the pastor of the Elkdale Baptist Church and you have to calculate the budget and learn how to do the percentage of the budget, those things that are not just a sign but are budgeted on percentage, and it's helpful to have algebra in your back pocket because you know the equation. We learn things progressively. And God has revealed himself and is, church, revealing himself progressively. He has given us a grand disclosure in the first coming of his son. And he will fully and finally disclose himself when his son comes again to reign. And so until then, recognize that God sees the big picture even though we don't. And so we trust Deuteronomy 29. We trust that the secret things belong to the Lord. And we instead choose to walk by faith and not by sight. And the third lesson that this brief passage teaches us is that God has a word for the world and that we, the church at all times and in all places, are his mouthpiece. Like John, we have a word for the world that both comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable, to borrow a phrase. So we must not fail to speak when God speaks. And by the same token, we must be silent when God is silent. I've been reminded of the word that God has for the world in the last week or so. Some of you will be familiar with the reports out of the First Baptist Church of Jacksonville, Florida, where Dr. Heath Lambert serves as the pastor. And that great church has been a, a pillar of our Southern Baptist Convention throughout the ages. And they recently, in an effort to both protect their uh, standing legally as a congregation and also to be clear about the nature of sexuality in our day, they put together a statement on human sexuality and asked their members to affirm that. And their members voted overwhelmingly, unanimously in a members meeting to, to then charge each other with signing this. And so then they have been about the work of asking people to sign this. It's caused, as you can imagine, quite the uproar in the city of Jacksonville. As people have wondered, are they just doing this to bash a certain subsect of our society? And whatever you might think about the language that they used, and I do think there was an omission there, and we talk about that in another setting, I think it's honorable that they chose as a congregation, as a congregation, to say we should be clear about what it is that we believe in a world that is increasingly turned against the things that we used to take for granted, that all people typically agreed on a generation ago, it matters that we're clear about these things from God's word. 
We have a prophetic role. We have a responsibility to be clear about what God's word says. And sometimes we take those stands corporately and publicly and we say together, this is what we believe. This is who we are. This is what the word of the Lord says. Sometimes that prophetic role is very private and very personal. It's when some dear brother, some dear sister comes to you for advice and they say, this is the problem that I have. This is the situation that I'm in. And no matter what it is that they say, you have a responsibility to speak truth. Not as though with a battering ram, not to condemn or to crush, but just to be honest. This is what the word of the Lord says. More often than not, in my pastoral work over these 12 years that I've been doing this, people have come and they've said, what do you think about this, preacher? And I've stumbled around and wondered, do I just say it? And I've learned over time, as difficult as it is, it's best to just say it. It's best to just be honest. It's best to say this is what the word of the Lord says. Because brothers and sisters, it alone is the authority for our faith and practice. It's why every Sunday morning before we stand together and hear the word of the Lord read, I tell you this, not what I have to preach, not what some other man says, but this inspired, inerrant book is what the word of the Lord says. John is told, you must again prophesy. John, there are people still far from the Lord. And though the age to come is coming, it hasn't come yet. So while there's still time, John, tell them the truth. Elkdale, the age that is to come has not come yet. And so while there's still time, with grace, with love, with kindness and compassion, like the Lord Jesus on the day of his entry into the holy city, weeping over a city that would not repent, we ought to be willing to speak truth. This is what the word of the Lord says to me, to you, and to the nations. God, our Father, I thank you. I thank you that you've given John these words to consume, to eat up, to give real thought to, and then to deliver, to give forth to his first hearers and to all those who've heard him since. Lord, there's no doubt that as we continue through this book, there are going to be difficult things for us to understand. There are symbols and images and descriptions that are, that are fierce and that may frighten us and, and more than anything that will perplex us. We will find ourselves wondering, what is this all about? So as we have this interlude in chapter 10, in chapter 11, as we get this moment to just pause in the midst of the story and take a breath, would you give us a measure of comfort in knowing, Lord, that while we don't have the whole story figured out, 
you do. And that not only do you see the whole picture, you're actually in control of the whole of history. And if, Sovereign Lord, you are in control, then there's nothing we need fear. Whatever befalls us, whatever comes in this life, ultimately, Lord, we have the promise of a life that is to come in your presence. The assurance that one day there will be an invitation to the great marriage supper of the Lamb. That one day there will be that experience where the old heaven and old earth pass away because a new heaven and a new earth have come and a new holy city, Jerusalem, will come down out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And there will be that grand and glorious experience where you, the very God of heaven and earth, will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death and sorrow will be no more. For the former things have passed away and all things will be made new. Lord, would you comfort us with those promises? And might they also serve as matters of conviction? That we stand firm on the assurance that you're in control and that we call the nations that are opposed to you, men, women, who are far from you, we call them to turn away from their sin and to trust in Jesus Christ while there is yet time. Give us grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.